Welcome to The Quiet Reformation. I'm Justin Ryan Boyer. Today on this special episode, Tim Deering talks with Andy Crouch about his new book, The Life We're Looking For. I'm the furthest thing from hopeless about our current world and our technological world and the technological empire we live in because we've seen it before. We've seen what happens, the renewal that can happen. And really a very small group of people, albeit somewhat crazy people, (laughs) say we're just not living on the empire's terms. We're doing this other thing. And then crazy stuff begins to happen. Andy is partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive business. His writings explore faith, culture, and the image of God in the domains of technology, power, leadership, and the arts. Andy also serves as special counsel for Netzer and lives with his family in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. His latest book is about reclaiming relationships in a technological world. Check out the links in the show notes for more information. We welcome Andy to the Quiet Reformation. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about having Andy Crouch with us today. Andy has uh, been a major influence on uh, our network here at Netzer for a long time, actually since its origin, and has uh, spoken into the ministry in a number of different ways. the books that he's written have influenced all of us across our network and have influenced people across uh, the nation and across the globe. And uh, I also am just so grateful for um, having had the experience of interaction with Andy over the years where we get to see and experience together the, the things that, that Andy's been contemplating and writing about. Uh, we get to see experienced um, and and blessing us as a network and as a ministry and really as friends as well. And so, um, yeah, grateful to have Andy with us. Andy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. The only problem is you're not in my living room. It would be better if you were in my living room, (laughs) (laughs) which is the usual way I see you, Tim. (laughs) It would be better because the scones always help. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What I didn't do in the interaction in the introduction here is say that Andy um, is obviously a gifted author, but he can make a mean scone as well. So, yeah. Andy, you have a book that's dropping as we're speaking here. Uh, It's true. It's true. Yeah. And you've been working on it. We've been, we've been kind of traveling the journey a little bit with you as you've been working on it. was really blessed to be a part of the prayer team um, as you were working on that. Uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit, uh, give us an introduction to the book and um, any any background to get us started here? Sure. It's wonderful to have it making its way in the world. Uh, the name is The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming a Relationship in a Technological World. And it's a book about what it is to be a person and how hard it is to be a person in the world that, that we've made using technology and how we could redesign. Um, so uh, as you know, Tim, I've been, uh, I mean, these are themes I've been thinking about kind of seriously, maybe for 10 or 15 years. Um, and of course I wrote a book, the TechWise family that was very specifically for families and parents. Um, 
and then a book with my daughter, Amy, uh, my TechWise Life, that was kind of the kid's eye view of it. But this is the bigger picture or the bigger frame, I think, for what families are dealing with. There's much more to be said beyond just what our home life is like. So it's my attempt to do that. And it's both short and kind of uh, ridiculously ambitious in terms of how much time, how much I'm trying to squeeze in. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's nice to have it done. <laughs> so uh, a snapshot um, for everybody, we're going to get into the content of the book here in a, in a minute, but a, but a snapshot for everybody, Andy, of life of a writer. I know you, you do more than just write, you speak and uh, you uh, <laughs> lead on a number of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, I, I love getting a little glimpse into this and I think it'd be good for others to hear what does it look like to labor over a book? I mean, it's literally like giving birth in many ways. I know you carry this thing in your womb and then you have to, uh, you know, bring it, <laughs> bring it to full term. So uh, give it, give a little snapshot here of what it looks like writing a book. I will say I, I'm always reluctant to compare it to labor. <laughs> yeah, no, I just got really in trouble with that myself. Um, <laughs> Also, it takes way more than nine months. That's the other problem. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it's uh, largely despair, uh, anguish, uh, self-loathing, uh, being convinced that I have made a huge mistake, um, fantasizing about how I could get out of any jurisdiction in which my publisher could, you know, sue me and reclaim the advance that they paid. <laughs> Sometimes literally lying on the floor in just total paralysis. And then eventually I pick myself up from all that, sometimes after days of that. And um, I'm like, come on, Crouch, you can, you can sit at a screen for 24 minutes, which is what I do. I set a timer <laughs> for 24 minutes, uh, which is based on this thing called the Pomodoro technique, which is another story. But I, I um, set a timer for 24 minutes. I figure I, I, can, I can, even if I get nothing done, I can sit here for 24 minutes. So I do, and almost always within those 24 minutes, something worthwhile has happened. And then the timer goes off. I I, we, we choke at, at our house. I walk around the house, which means I literally go out my front door, walk around the house and come back in my front door and maybe make some tea. And then I set another 24 minute timer. And on a good day, I have four of those sessions. It's just unbelievable how little actual time, how much pain and avoidance there is to get to the actual four <laughs> 24 minute sessions in which all the work gets done. But most days when I get myself over the hump of that first 24 minute session, by the end, I have a thousand words and you do that. I think this is a 55,000 word book. So you do that 55 times and you have a book and you nearly died doing it. And your wife <laughs> and kids and friends who visit your house uh, are really tired of hearing about it. And then it, then it's done. Andy, I, I, I'm so glad you shared this because I felt like uh, people just needed to hear it. Okay. Like, as you know, I've been working at putting together a book yes. myself and yes. as you've kind of given, coached me a little bit, it, it was the most encouraging thing ever to hear, oh, okay, 424 minute periods yeah. a day and you feel successful. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. Like if Andy Crouch <laughs> is saying that now, granted, you're going to be a lot more productive and uh, in, in your 24 minutes than I, Depends but on the day. <laughs> I, I was, I was so blessed by that. And actually it was incredible. It was like, it was a science. It was amazing. The uh, 24 minutes you write by the end, I, I I'm halfway through a sentence. 
yep. the timer goes off and I'm like, yep. all right, I'm leaving it there. The creative yes. juices are going. Yes, it's yes, a cliffhanger. Yes. I'm just going to do some push-ups here, right. jumping jacks, exactly. whatever. Yeah. And then when you get back, you're like ready to go on that one, hopefully, <laughs> you know, yep. that was super helpful. Yeah. So any, any of our listeners here who, who are uh, <laughs> in the process of trying to write, whether that's a... Uh, uh, a paper for school or whether that is a, uh, an article you're working on, whatever it is, uh, the, the, uh, 24, six minute rotation yeah. is well worth it. If there is one word that sums up the crisis of personhood in our time for the powerful and powerless alike, it is loneliness. Like Ernest Hemingway's character who went broke gradually and then suddenly, modern people and societies have suddenly become acutely aware that we are relationally bankrupt. My life is full of convenience. It is full of transaction. At its best, a mutually beneficial exchange of value, a kind of arm's length benign use of one another for our own ends. But it is not full of contemplation. It is often efficient, but it is lonely. My world is full of people, indeed more full than any human being before the last few crowded centuries could have possibly imagined, but it does not feel like a world of persons. As we think in terms of personhood, you kick this book off with um, just making it abundantly clear that we have a systemic problem in our mm. culture. Mm. around what it means to be a person and you put your finger on it right out of the gate and you just say mm. this this problem is loneliness we are mm. very very lonely lonely people yeah. and uh how would you describe loneliness um for someone who's saying am i lonely well i mean you know the very first time i thought about this i remember asking my friend Zach Naringia, who's now a bishop in the Church of Uganda, but back then he was just a pastor and leader. Um, I said, Zach, when you visit the United States, what do you notice? You know that I might not notice. And he instantly said, "Oh, I notice how lonely it is." Wow. <laughs> and and then the interesting thing is that that was probably 20, 20 years ago. And and since then, I've asked a number of friends from different parts of the world, um, especially the so-called developing world, the, the non-Western world. You know, just when you visit the United States, what do you notice? They all say the same thing. They all they all use that word. Um, I've probably had five different people from five different like countries say that. So. In some ways, I would I would actually say I, I'm not sure any resident of America should trust themselves to self-diagnose this the, the question you just asked. That, that is, am I lonely or not? Because when because we might be so swimming in a way of life that is isolated and isolating that we don't even know what it would be to not be lonely. <laughs> Mm. Um, I mean, obviously there's degrees of it and we all have had moments where we feel there's no one looking for us. There's no one looking out for us. Um, no one attending to us. And that's probably the essence of loneliness. And I think that's the difference between loneliness and aloneness or solitude. Um, because if you are in a good place with, in a sense with God and the world, you can be alone and not feel unattended to not feel cut off. Um, and of course, conversely, you can be in the midst of a huge crowd and feel extremely cut off from personal recognition and attention. So, you know, in that sense, I think, um, 
you you are lonely if if there's no one uh who who knows what at all what it's like to be you no one who's trying to know what it's like to be you at this moment uh or in this season of your life or in this aspect of your life you can be lonely in a particular aspect you can be your life can be very full in one way um but but there can be these dimensions where nobody knows what it's like to be you in in this regard you might say and that's that can be lonely but i think what my, my friend zach and then the subsequent friends who have said this who have observed this from different parts of the world have reminded me is uh it's not just we as individuals who might pass through seasons of loneliness or even live long lives of loneliness we live in a in a cultural environment that is structured to make it difficult to pay attention to other people and to mm. regard other people and and know what it's like to be other people um and you know sorry i'm going on and on here but um having visited zach uh, whether it was when he said that or not but having visited the country he grew up in um other parts of the world um and then you come back and you drive through a typical american suburb and you realize you can drive for miles and not see a human being who's not encased in steel and glass uh you know in an, in another car and and you go to these other parts of the world where people you know realistically can't afford that and if they could afford it they'd probably want to live the way we live at least at first because there are there are appealing things about our way of life but you go to a place where people mostly walk mostly live in a neighborhood, mostly interact on foot face to face. And you're like, oh yeah, if you, if you just dropped into, you know, suburban Philadelphia, you'd be like, where, where are the people? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then we, you know, uh, stereotypically, at least we pull into the, you know, driveway. I literally saw someone, I was out on my bike a couple days ago, saw someone do this, like pulled into her driveway. You can, you can see her hit the button on her little visor, the, the little dash, uh, you know, um, sun visor and you know exactly what, what's going to happen the garage door is going to roll up and her car is going to pull in and then the garage door is going to close and she'll be encased in that house and yes. you know no moment when she's even just out of doors like in the presence of creation this is the world we've built you know yeah so yeah you know you one of the uh illustrations you use in the book that i think is so striking on this is when you're talking about being in o'hare in the airport mm -hmm. um and you at one point decided you were going to go for a walk and have an exercise of acknowledging each person that you see is made in the image of God and <laughs> that they're an image bearer. Um, and, and that you, what I, it, we're going to let that develop as people read the book. It's, a, it's just a great uh, portion to read, but that you've kind of carried that on at times and said, uh, uh, you will choose to look around at people around you and just say image bear image bear image bear image bear and yeah. I, I particularly was struck by that when you were talking about here's this person in a car who i'm seeing pass mm -hmm. by me extremely mm -hmm. easy to dehumanize that person yeah right yeah. and yet i'm <laughs> yeah. looking through the glass I, I, i'm always surprised actually when i when i see a person behind a car and i think they look a certain way and then if they get out of the car uh -huh. man they look so much different than i pictured them in <laughs> yeah, the car yeah, because yeah, they, you yeah. know there's distortion a little bit and all that but but here you are looking and just saying image bearer image yeah. bearer and and what does that mean I, I that was really striking it was rooted first in um your uh, the etymology of the word uh persona the, the uh, latin word persona uh, that you developed yeah. and um you you talked about what that word actually means 
like what it means to be a person. And um, so again, part of the contrast of, uh, of what it means to actually be a person. um, And I'm looking at this person then as an image bearer of Christ versus, and then how would you say what's on the other end of that for us? So, you know, mm. we might see this as a person made in the image of God if we're seeing things, you know, mm. uh, ideally the way mm. we should. But, um, but what's the what's the other option that we tend to default into in seeing one another? You know, here's one way to put it that ties together a couple of things in the book. I think uh, <laughs> we start to see other people as robots. So that may sound weird. Mm. Like you're mm-hmm. like, well, no, that doesn't sound right. But the word robot um, was coined by this Czech playwright Carl Chopek. Um, because he wanted to write a book about creatures who would look just like us, but would be manufactured rather than begotten to, mm. to do the work that the human race didn't want to do. And so he wrote this play in nine, the 1920s, I forget the exact year, called Rossum's Universal Robots. And, and he had to, he, he had, no one had come up with a name for this kind of idea of humanoid. And in, in his play, they're not um, mechanical. They're not, they aren't like, um, yeah, they, they look like, people they're, and of course they, they were played by people uh, on the stage they, they look like flesh and blood but they're actually just manufactured and um, so he his brother uh, suggested the word robot from the, the Czech word for serf or you could say slave certainly indentured like bound servant is what ro- robota mm-hmm. means in, in the Slavic languages and so um, I actually think when we don't see other people as uh, image bearers. We see them as um, sort of less than human presences in the world whose importance to us is basically their utility to us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Their utility or their disutility. Oh, that stupid driver cut me off, you know. Uh, in other words, uh, that person had negative utility to my desire to get where I'm going or, um, or, oh, isn't it nice, you know, my Amazon package will arrive today. Uh, now, you know, that's a kind of disembodied way about speaking about a process that probably involved, oh, I don't know, at least four or five human beings touched that package at different moments. But I can easily just think of it as I ordered a package from Amazon, Amazon delivered my package. And the fact that some of the touches were by mechanical robots because they bought the robot manufacturer Kiva years ago. And so in their warehouses, there are all these little robots scurrying around, picking and pulling the the thing I ordered. Um, But, you know, to the extent that for a while, maybe it was a mechanical robot that carried the package and then a human being maybe carried it. And then maybe a human being got on a vehicle and drove it here. From my my point of view, it's really doesn't matter whether it was mechanical or a human being, right? the package got delivered <laughs> impersonally yeah. without my ever having to know anyone, see anyone um, interact with a person as a person. Um, so I think when we don't, uh, the, I, I think I quote in the book, uh, just one of the most like profound sentences I ever heard uttered was uttered by a woman named Leanne Payne, who was a teacher of the spiritual life and of prayer. And she had this uh, beautiful challenging line we either contemplate or we exploit. We either contemplate or we exploit. So I either am going to behold you as an image bearer, or I'm going to just basically ask, what good are you for me right now? Like, if I don't contemplate you first, I'm just going to jump right to the question of what good are you? Like, what, what, what can you yes. do for me? 
And if you can't do anything for me, then you might as well, I'll, I'll just ignore you. I'll neglect you. Uh, and if you can do something for me, fine, but it's, it's exploitation, not presence. It's not recognition. It's just insofar as you are useful. And that is exactly what robots, we dream of having robots because we dream of having highly capable intelligences in the world that all we need from them and all they demand of us is to be useful to us, if that makes sense, rather than yeah. that they would make a claim on us or would somehow uh, be, need to be attended to and revered in their own right. No, wouldn't it be better just to have things that just worked for us, but with super high intelligence and very, very capable, um, but without the complication of being an image bearer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm so glad you brought up that quote because uh, that quote was uh, phenomenal. And and really the way you kind of tease it out that we're either contemplating or we're exploiting. Yeah. And uh, the, it begs a couple other questions from two sections of, of the book. Um, and I think that uh, from my perspective, when I first hear... Uh, that one of the key things that we as humans need is to be seen and recognized by mm. others. So it, what you talk about an infant who is just looking, searching, waiting yeah. for someone to find them and, and that we as humans learn to identify our own persona, our own personhood by being recognized yeah. by others. One of the questions that brings to mind for me, um, I think, I think that, uh, while that uh, is is obviously true, uh, when you say it, it's one of those things that uh, that you say I, we probably should have known that, you know. And I love this. Good writers do this. They they uh, have a way of uh, bringing something into focus that I subliminally, subliminally knew was true, mm. and then it was like named and brought out, and it's like, oh man, that just resonates so deeply. Of course, and uh, and yet there's a question that it that it begs for me. Um, when we begin to identify ourselves based on how others view us. So I'm in, mm -hmm. in the perception of someone else, they're seeing me a certain way and I'm beginning to identify myself. Mm -hmm. But you know, as Christian ministers, one of the things we do all the time is say, you are not who people say you are. You are who God says you are. Yeah. Right. And so we need to see ourselves through the eyes of God. Uh, so uh, what does it look like, Andy, as humans who struggle with loneliness and who need to be recognized by others uh, to say, I need others to see me or we need to see one another. And we, I know you're not arguing for us to go looking for people to see us as much as you're inviting us to be agents of those recognizing others. You're asking us to be on the, on the side of recognizing, but there's a question in there mm -hmm. about as vulnerable humans who need others mm. and yet also need the ability to be known outside of just the perception of others. Can you talk about that a little wow. bit? Wow. Yeah, that's so good. You know, there's this, uh, there's a, there's something in the background of this book that didn't make it at all into the book. I think for good reasons, you can, <laughs> I'm already trying to do too many things in this book probably, but uh, th there's a, a whole area of political theory called the politics of recognition. And um, the, the sort of principal figures in it are, are a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian, and then Axel Honneth, who's a German, I believe, European philosopher, 
of the 20th century and both of them writing in different ways about how they feel like a lot of what's driven modern politics is is actually the demand to be recognized, uh, the demand to have your identity kind of affirmed. And they trace it through a series of movements in Western history. And uh, there's some point to that. And there's some way in which it's right for the state, you know, the nation state to recognize people. But, but part of what's going on in this book is I'm actually, in a, in a way, I was trying to write about um, the recognition that, that, uh, that the state can't give and that you can't demand. Um, a lot of demand for recognition is just essentially demand for affirmation of some aspect of who I am that hasn't been uh, acknowledged or affirmed by other people. And the thing is real relationship is way messier than that. <laughs> so uh, as you said, like anyone who cares for the good of others is not, we're not simply going to ratify everything we see in each other. We are going to um, push one another in various ways or, or urge one another. I mean, you know, is it Hebrews who says, you know, spur one another on somebody says that in the Bible, spur one another on to love and to good deeds. In other words, you are not, you are bent away from love and you're bent away from the good you were meant to do. And you need people who are going to like, I mean, if we take the metaphor, literally, I don't know if it's there in the Greek, but it's there in the English metaphor. We're going to like kick you in the side with a pointy thing. That's what a spur is. <laughs> like, no, no, go this direction, go in the direction of love, go in the direction of the good you were meant to do. And, um, that's that's very different from the politics of recognition, which are basically just rati you know constitutionally, culturally, socially, legally ratify my existence versus face to face in an encounter with another person. That person says, "I both see what I I I do feel what it's like to be you." So you do, you are not alone in that way, but I also envision something for you that isn't there yet. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think yeah. that's what we have to be for one another. And I actually think it's the absence of those kind of formative communities that are driving the politics of recognition. It's the absence of having that mm -hmm. in our homes and our families, our most formative communities like school and church, um, that as our world has become more lonely, ironically, the demands for recognition from the sort of the state, you might say, or from political entities, whether that's media or whatever, get louder and louder to cover up the, the lack of having actually been part of what in the book I would call a household, which is more than just family, that actually saw me and also saw what I could be, you know, not just what I am or have decided I am. Um, does yeah. that make sense? I'm not sure yeah, it's exactly what absolutely. you're asking about, but it, it is strikes no, me it's, as it, important. It's, yeah, it's spot on. I, I, I uh, really want to bring that around to, I was saying that when you were contrasting robot and person, uh, um, that there was two parts of the book that that drew me to. One is that ability to be recognized, but then, yeah, so being recognized by humans in a way that affirms that we're actually in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And then, and then on, on the other side, you talk about how to live that in the midst of empire. Um, <laughs> and how we walk that out in the midst of empire. And one of the, the specific things that you talked about is how much of a call there is toward influence, um, using mm. this word influence. And the way we talk about this, you know, <clears throat> one thing about this book that of course resonates so deeply with us, Andy, you know, you know how much we love 
to, we do church for church leaders. This is what we do. We, we think that uh, pastors are constantly uh, working in an environment and church leaders in an environment where their relational contexts are their jobs. Mm, and uh, mm. so it's very important to relate to people appropriately to perform well in their relationship with people mm. and their influence of people, but then them being able to relate to a group of people as an actual community where there's vulnerability and yep. authority. It sounds like yep. uh, another yep. book I read. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and in that space that they can be known as yes. humans where they're, they're yes. able to be transparent and vulnerable enough to be known. And so yeah. Uh, part of what we do within Netzer is is working to create communities among those uh, Christian leaders to be able to be recognized yes. by one another. Yes, and exactly. in the midst of that, when you were talking about how to live in in the empire and talking about this word influence, and there's this danger. The way we talk about this is uh, performance based identity, mm. um, and mm. particularly when we have get our mission in front of our purpose. So in, in the uh, Christian evangelical world, if we're saying that the greatest call on humans um, is uh, the Great Commission, I remember uh, a certain Andy Crouch coming and speaking at one of our uh, 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 events that we had and said, well, that's fine if you start your Bible at Genesis chapter three and end it at Revelation 19. But, when, <laughs> uh, but, but before the fall of man and after all things are made new, we still have a purpose. Yeah. And when we live in a shrunken space, yeah. There is a deep desire to be recognized and identified by Ooh. how well we're performing yes. rather than yes. our pre-fallen uh, creator saying, no, I've made you in my image and, wow. um, and having that space. So uh, I think that when, when you're bringing all that together, what it is that was so compelling here is you use, and this is where I, I want to bring it back in because I think I think this is right at the heart. Tell me if this is right at the heart of your writing. Is this picture of Gaius and the community um, mm. that you have a first century uh, picture of a home mm. where people are being recognized, not for what their status is in society, not mm. for mm. how well they're performing, but because of who they are in the eyes mm. of God, that mm. this is this is the power place. Like this is where um, <laughs> it all fits. This is where... And I know that's what we're working on with these cohorts we have, but Andy, uh, can you describe for us a little bit of what the, what is the actual, like, what is going on in this household that's so powerful and that you're inviting people into? Wow. 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 Okay. Actually, you're helping me put together a couple of things that I hadn't quite figured out uh, just from the last few days, actually. Um, so, uh, so just to set the table here. So Gaius would be the name of the host uh, of a group of people that we glimpse in Romans 16. And I do write quite a bit about him and the other people who we find together in the house. Um, we find out about just incidentally because of um, the greetings in, in the, in Romans 16. And the, the question that I ask in the book is, you know, what influence did they have in the end? I mean, uh, and, and so the way this connects to empire, so I'm going to circle back around to that. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be in an empire, whether it's the Babylonian empire, the Roman empire, the, um, the Chinese empire, the, the empire of the Han, you know, which is the longest running empire in human history at this point. Um, or for that matter, the Pax Americana, that was kind of the 20th century, uh, a 20th century empire of, of a sort 
is to be surrounded by very, very clear examples of power at scale. <laughs> in other words, when you are in an empire, you know the template for getting things done. It's the way Caesar gets things done. It's the way Xi Jinping gets things done. It's the way, you know, pick your emperor. Um, it's the way Nebuchadnezzar gets things done. And, um, and you are then tempted, what I would say tempted, um, invited <laughs> uh, <laughs> to model your use of power on the way the, em the emperor gets, uses power. Mm. Um, and this is very true in the first century because it's so interesting to me. Like there are some things about the providence of God that are just super fascinating. One is that God places his chosen people geographically in like the most vulnerable spot in the known world. Like this little sliver of land, you know, uh, next to the Jordan River is like the worst place in geopolitical history to live because every empire needs that little sliver of land to, to expand around the Mediterranean. And God's, God says to his chosen people here, have this tiny, not very defensible, <laughs> vulnerable place where that Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Greece, et cetera, are all going to want to conquer. Um, and, and then chronologically, so that's the geographical placement of the first redemptive people, Israel. The new Israel, chronologically, arises in the first century AD or first century of the common era, which is the absolute pinnacle of the, the consolidation of the power of Rome. And for three or four more centuries, Rome is going to look like absolutely, this is how you get things done in the world. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and you've got Augustus Caesar, who has a very unusually long reign. I think he reigns for uh, I forget it's a third, almost 40 years, which is a long time for a Caesar. Um, and he's an incredibly effective. He, he consolidates power across the known world. And uh, in Praini, which is now in Turkey, uh, which is a Roman colony, the citizens, even I think before his 50th birthday, they've, they've erected this inscription <laughs> that says the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the whole world. <laughs> um, we, we uncovered this inscription a few decades ago, the beginning of the gospel uh, for the whole world. So, of course, when Mark writes his gospel and begins at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's directly quoting and inverting um, the the priny inscription this language of hey the you know this is really where good news begins and he's he says i want to tell you about a different son of god and here's how this connects something i was just i was just talking to my daughter we were so we're recording this the day after easter sunday and um the in, in our in the church we were at together as a family yesterday uh the gospel text was mark's account of the the resurrection appearance and of course the the huge question about Mark is, did he really end his gospel the way it seems like he did? We have this late edition that doesn't seem authentic and, pro you know, it's always in brackets in my, in Bibles. Um, and, and could it really be that that late edition, if you take that off, what you have is the women fled and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. <laughs> and it's even worse in Greek because it, it ends on the word for the Greek guard, G-A-R, which is just this tiny little preposition that you're it's you know you never put it at the end of a sentence you never put it at the end of a book for goodness sake right. it's such a weak <laughs> ending it's such a lame ending 
and and my daughter's like uh you know she's a senior in college she has a lots of her thoughts of her own so it wasn't like a three-year-old asking this question she's like so dad what do you make of the ending of the gospel of mark <laughs> so we had this really interesting conversation about it um but here's what i think is going on if that's the original ending and i i'm in the school thinks yes that's how mark ended it he ends it with the women so the the men are in hiding and the women are silent um because he wants to say i'm telling you the story of a truly different divine son this is not augustus caesar style impact where you like ascend to power and boom things start happening and the world starts changing I want to tell you a story that literally as his own account of Jesus has it begins like a mustard seed. It begins so small and it's not impressive at all. The beginning of this story has nothing in it that is going to make you think, well, this is going to change the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in fact it is. And, and that takes us back to Gaius and his home in Corinth where Phoebe is there and Paul's there. And this uh, scribe named Tertius is there. He's the one who wrote down their names. Um, and this little group of people who can fit around a table and do fit around a table and share meals together and the church that meets in Gaius's home and the church down the road that meets in, in Phoebe's home in Kekriai, um, these are tiny gatherings of people that have no impact at all on their culture at this moment, but influence in terms of long-term, what has mattered most in the world, their lives, which were like a mustard seed are now like, well, we're still talking about them here. Like they, they're influencing yeah. us. Um, so when we think about our work as leaders, let's say of the church, we have to recognize we live in technology's empire. Temp technology, just like Caesar did in his time, technology now gives us a template for what it means to matter, what it means to make a difference, what it means to have your life have meaning. And, and uh, above all, really essentially what it means to have power. And Jesus, the way of Jesus is just different. It's, um, it, it, it doesn't immediately look, I mean, it, it can look like, uh, hiding in silence. <laughs> and yet mm. if it's, if God's at work and we believe God's at work and we believe Jesus is risen from the dead, then, then this patient work of just recognizing one another, caring for each other, really knowing and being known, and then going out and doing that for other people and inviting them into that circle. That is the real work of the kingdom. And God's not going to neglect it or let it, let it fall to the ground and not bear fruit. Um, but man, it's hard to believe that when Augustus Caesar is, you know, triumphing and running, running the show. Man, it's hard to do that in a day of one day shipping, and uh yeah, it exactly. doesn't seem like quick work man yeah a, a world of robots that do things yes. for that we're like oh this is amazing well but that's yeah. not gonna be the template for the way the the work of love grows it's not amen one day shipping. <laughs> yeah it's very so ironic you, just as we were starting this interview i i desperately need a certain thing from staples the office superstore and i ordered it on Instacart because today's very full and I've got, I got to have that thing. And so a whole <laughs> bunch of robots while we're talking are, are doing the work and you know, uh, it'll be here by the time we're done talking, but that just cannot be. So that's useful. It's because I need to be productive today. There's, there's a place for all this technology. It's basically to be productive. Um, but in the, in the environments that are formative and creative, we cannot afford to let technology like give us the, the, the marching orders of how we do what we do.
We do not have to accept our technology's default settings. They can be adapted and eventually redesigned to serve a new and better set of purposes. We do not have to live in ever-increasing isolation. Our homes, like Gaius's, can become creative centers far more consequential than the refuges of consumption and leisure we have let them become. And from these new households, we can begin to extend the recognition of personhood to those most in danger of being overlooked. The great news is that there are already examples of these redemptive moves, some seedlings, some saplings, some beginning to bear widespread fruit. And we all have a part to play in helping them grow. And I got to tell you, Andy, I've just been leaning in a lot lately to um, Count Zinzendorf. Um, mm. And hm. it reminded me so much of the wow. story of Zinzendorf, which yes. is a, a much, wow. much closer to modern history, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the 1700s. And, yeah. um, and here he is in Ehrenhut and he's one of the, one of the wealthiest guys in Europe. Right. Um, and, uh, and he's on a honeymoon. Uh, with his wife uh, in this vast property that he has. And he kind of wanders onto his grandma's property and comes across these Hussite refugees who were kicked out of Moravia. And he finds these refugees and he watches the way they're interacting with one another. And he realizes exactly what it is you're talking about. These people deeply know one another. Wow. And he gets jealous in the best sense wow. of the word. And he says, I want to, I want to live with them. So he, he buys his grandma's property, sets up a home for them. It, it builds a town called Ernhut and they build this community there. And then he moves into the community and, uh, and he's often referred to as the rich young ruler who said yes, because um, he's like wow. letting go of everything so that he can experience this community. Oh and as he moves into this community, the most amazing things ha happens. There's this valet. He's a slave. Uh, his name's uh, Anton Ulrich, and he's a slave um, of, uh, of, uh, of a Dutchman. Um, and he comes to the community. He, somehow Zinzendorf interacts with him, and he starts to hear the story of this guy about Africa and what it's like. And he brings him to the Ehrenhut community. And, he be, and this guy, Ulrich, begins to share the plight of his people. And these Hussites are so struck by it that they're like, Today, we're making a decision to send missionaries to Africa. Wow. And 18% of the community mobilized for mission <laughs> to go overseas <laughs> to Africa in that moment. And they were, and, and all of this was in the midst of an enormous prayer meeting that lasted yeah. for a hundred years. Yeah, and exactly. it also was the birth of one of the greatest mission movements in, yeah. uh, in history. And it was all because of this little community where they were being known. Oh, and I will say it took five years of them trying to live out this community. And it was bloody hard <laughs> for yeah, like five totally, years totally. until, until there was an Anglican priest um, who, uh, I'm sorry, not an Anglican, a Lutheran priest who uh, acknowledged how cool it was, what they were doing, and came and served them communion. And at that communion service is where the prayer meeting, the 100-year prayer meeting broke out, is when he was saying, this is awesome. And uh, everything broke out. And after that, they said the whole thing switched. For five years, it was brutal. And after that, Whoa. it just flowed. Oh uh, and, goodness. and I was like thinking about when I'm reading your stories of Gaius, I was thinking about Zinzendorf and I was just like, yes. oh, that's it. And that's in 
closer to modern history too. Totally, totally, yeah. totally. This is this is the way. Like, and this is the way these that renewal movements happen over and over. What you know, with interesting differences of detail from time to place and time, but uh, it is just this is the way. And and, and they can have huge. I, you know, on one scale, uh, no impact because things, good things just take time. But on other scales, obviously, I mean, the Moravians and then, of course, Wesley, who was converted because of this movement and the Methodists, like, you know, uh, over 100 years, a lot happens. (laughs) So this is why I'm so, um, I'm the furthest thing from hopeless about our current world and our technological world and the technological empire we live in. Because we've seen it before. We've seen what happens, the renewal that can happen um, when, when really a very small group of people, albeit somewhat crazy people, <laughs> say, we're just not living on the empire's terms. We're doing this other thing. And then crazy stuff begins to happen and not the way Caesar works. And I think you and I have talked about this marvelous book by Alan Kreider, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And uh, mm. he talks about how, you know, for 350 years, the church just grows patiently through the teaching of patience. And then Caesar, Constantine, becomes Christian. And Caesar's like, well, I can get things done a lot faster. And the kind of last part of Kreider's book is this sort of tragic reflection on what happens when Caesar decides to help the church out with his way of doing things, <laughs> which is mm. coercion <laughs> and bureaucracy and dictates and law. And there's a place maybe for some of those things, and it's just very complicated, but but you don't need Caesar to get the real thing done, and you don't need his way of doing things. Man, I, and I appreciate you name in the book that uh, there's a temptation for us to trade uh, our own personhood for power, um, yes. because that's the lie that uh, of that empire, that's, that's the lie, right. that we can have our superpowers and yep. live very independent, and uh, that that the God of all that is the wealth, the mammon, the yeah. mammon. Uh, and um, everybody, you got to read the book. You just got to <laughs> read the book. There's a lot there. There's a lot of really good stuff. Also, as you're reading that book, it reminded me um, when, particularly when you were talking about trading on power, I was like, yeah, but there's also this whole thing about redeeming power that Andy's written oh, about yes, yes. playing God. <laughs> and uh, which by the way, has been uh, one of my, probably the, the book that I've really, I've read all of Andy's books and love all his stuff. Um, you got to get playing God. That's an awesome one. Someone that's so relevant for our world right now as well. So mm. another one you got to jump into, uh, I, I'm going to keep making plugs here for a minute because uh, for our family, um, we've used TechWise Family and uh, we've read TechWise Family with our children, uh, listened to the audiobook of the, the most recent uh, with uh, Andy's daughter, Amy, who uh, wrote uh, and uh, is called uh, Being Raised in a TechWise uh, Family. It's called My TechWise Life. Yeah, my, my tech wise life. life. Growing up and making yeah. choices in a world of devices. Yeah. Yes, 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 it is. And uh, so we listened to that together, an audio book, which was fun too. And uh, so, hey, uh, dive into this stuff. It's really helpful, as you all can tell from the interview today. Um, this stuff is uh, rich, rich, and important things for us to be uh, diving into. Andy, before we wrap things up, uh, one question that I want to ask you is um, I want to get this personalized for people a little bit when we're huh. sitting hanging out in your living room having scones and tea and and talking we're also sharing personally what's happening with the lord you know what mm. we're encountering personally um 
And one of the things that we like to do uh, on the podcast is uh, invite people to speak about a place where um, they've seen God at work. And it can be an early testimony uh-huh. of faith or a place more recently where huh. we've seen God in action and just allow us as uh, to be a little more um, humanized in our uh, uh, following, uh, following of, of Christ. So are there any... Um, anything that you could share with the listeners right now, a place where you've seen God at work that stands out kind of personal to Mm. you? I will share with you what I shared with my wife and my daughter yesterday, which is especially appropriate given Netzer and who Netzer serves. You know, we've been through these two years uh, of a lot of isolation, inevitably a lot of loneliness, certainly a lot of aloneness. And one of the forms of isolation has been isolation from, for so many people from the church and the like worship life of the church. In the past four weeks, I've had the great privilege of being in four different worshiping congregations in a way that I haven't been in two years uh, because Mm. of the pandemic, largely. Um. And these were in different parts of the country, very different places, one to the next. But um, I have seen the power of God's people kind of regathered after this pandemic season where, where I, don't, I don't know what the right thing was to do, but I certainly understand why we followed the dictates of why many churches followed the kind of prescriptions of this public health profession and so forth and limited the way we gathered um, in many parts of the country now, I mean, I was in San Francisco, I was just in Durham, North Carolina and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in many parts of the country. Now we can regather the way that we did, uh, two years ago and for most of history and the, the power of worship in a community that has been led to trust Jesus <laughs> is just, it, it has been incredible just Sunday after Sunday to be back in that. Um, and to see it in very different cultural contexts, very different kinds of places. And I was saying to my wife and daughter, as we drove back from visiting our son in, in the triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, uh, for Easter weekend, I said, I feel like I really need to repent of having sort of lost confidence in the church as God's primary way of getting things done in the world. <laughs> and of course I hadn't, I hadn't changed my like theological position or my ecclesiology or anything, but I had just sort of lost heart, I think. Hmm. And I just happened to have been in four places in the last four weeks that have completely rekindled my sense. Like this is the redemptive thing. Like all the other stuff, like writing Christian books or working for Christian nonprofits, like I do, or, you know, all the, all the parachurch things, which are legitimate things to do. I hope, cause that's kind of what I do. Um, <laughs> they pale in comparison to the word, the sacraments, the power of the spirit song, like proclaiming aloud the goodness of God in the great congregation. Like, and that's what we get to do on Sundays. And I know how hard it is. And I know that probably many people listening to this, like half your people are, have disappeared. Half of them refuse to come back from online. I mean, I've heard so many hor- horrible stories, but I just want to say, like, I have been just in my own life, um, the, the fact that there are these congregations where, where people like the folks listening to this have just been faithful through two horrible years and have kept discipling people and caring for people and are still showing up to lead worship, it has completely like 
rejuvenated my heart and soul and mind and strength um, to be in, in those gathered communities. So uh, do your labor in the Lord is not in vain. <laughs> do not lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good because um, what we get to do on the Lord's day, there's n- there is nothing like it anywhere else in the world. And it's just, it's been such a gift to be uh, in the weeks leading up to Easter um, to see that expressed in very, very different kinds of churches. It's been a real, real gift. Man, that's an awesome testimony. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks just for your transparency in that as well. And I hope everybody who's listening is hearing that deep in your spirit right <laughs> now. Uh, your labor is not in vain <sighs> and you will reap a harvest in due season when you don't give up and you continue on trusting the Lord. So thanks so much, Andy, for being with us today. Thank you for those who are listening, tuning in. And uh, we look forward to the next conversation with you, Andy. And uh, hopefully the next conversation I have with you will, in fact, have scones. Um, Indeed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, as we we roll out too, I just also want to say, man, God bless you. Thanks so much for your work. writhing on the floor hoping for the inspiration to write the book we're all recipients and we're extremely grateful thanks brother it means the world to us thank you the Lord is gracious and righteous and full of compassion he protects the simple he saves me when I'm low once more, be at rest, oh my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. So every vow I have made, I will pay, oh Lord. I'm your servant With my offerings I will give thanks And I'll call on the name Yes, I'll call on